Hi, and welcome to Take Every Thought Captive, our weekly look at the Catholic intellectual tradition and an exploration of the authors, books, and topics that have shaped Catholic thinking for 2,000 years. My name is Jason Gale, and I'm joined this week by Dr. Richard Bruzzichelli, our lecturer in theology for Catholic Studies Academy. And today, Dr. Bruzzichelli is going to talk to us about the ideas of celibacy and the married priesthood. Uh, and this has uh, particularly been in the news uh, because of the uh, synod that's going to be happening uh, on the Amazon. I think that's coming up in October. Uh, and so we thought it'd be a good opportunity to maybe look at this issue and try to find a, a good a good Catholic approach to uh, beginning to look at this issue. How can we understand it better? And how can we maybe explain it to others better as well? And so, uh, Dr. Buzzi-Kelly, maybe to get us started, what are some of the attitudes uh, that are kind of coming forth in this kind of phrase, you know, or the, the way that people are, are stating this issue is that they're saying that the married priesthood will solve the, the, the problems of, of a priest shortage, or it'll solve the problems surrounding uh, celibacy. Uh, how, how, you know, how, what are these kind of approaches? What are they, what are they telling us kind of about the situation you think? The first thing we notice, right, is that when people talk about celibacy in relation to the priesthood, mm-hmm. they're seeing celibacy as the cause, or perhaps the primary, uh, a primary cause, if not an exclusive cause, mm-hmm. of the shortage that we have in um, finding men to ordain. Right. Now, prima facie, one might be inclined to accept that diagnosis, right, mm-hmm. because in fact... Marriage is a good toward which most human beings historically have gravitated. Right. And uh, to ask someone to forego that good is asking a great deal. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I would say that within the Judeo-Christian tradition, and especially in the Christian tradition specifically, we find that there really the the opposition is not really between marriage and celibacy, right? Mm-hmm. But between the conjugal life and the priesthood, right? Or mm-hmm. the ordained ministry in general. What what we're putting, we're, what we're doing is we're suggesting that um, allowing married men to be ordained would be the same as allowing married men or allowing uh, priests to enjoy the conjugal life. Mm-hmm. In fact, historically, uh, that is, those are not equivalent ideas. Right. Right. In in the primitive church, married men were, in fact, ordained. Right. Mm-hmm. We know this to be the case. Uh, we meet, for example, Peter's mother-in-law right. uh, in the Gospels, right? Now, what we're not told is whether Peter's wife is still alive. Peter may have been a widower. We don't really know that. Mm-hmm. Um, but at least it, it it's a possibility given as far as the text actually goes, that, um, you know, that Peter was, in fact, a married man at the time that uh, he was following Christ around. But what this does not tell us is that Peter enjoyed normal conjugal relations with his wife. Mm -hmm. We know that in the early church, when married men were ordained, they were required to remain abstinent, right? So this this is actually a, this is a big deal. Wives had to consent, yeah. right, to the ordination of their husbands. And one of the reasons they had to consent was because 
actually a great deal was to be asked of them as well, right? right? Not simply that her husband would be busy like a medical doctor is busy. Yeah. But that that they would be um that their husbands would be taken away from them. Yeah, and yeah, and you could see remnants of this like for the uh process of becoming a permanent deacon. Uh you it still requires the the wife has to allow uh, the husband to be ordained, you know, the church right. asked the wife for this, you know, now granted there's, you know, uh, they, they don't have this restriction. Now there is an argument I think out there about, there is about the church never abrogating the celibacy of yeah, that's right. the deacon, that's right, actually. Uh, yeah, that's but that's, right. that's, so that's, that's a, that's a whole nother, that's a whole nother well, issue. And but stuff, it's but. worth bringing up. I mean, I, so let's not, let's not digress too far into it, but it is yeah. worth noting. Yeah. Uh, the ordination ritual for the deacon does include reference to celibacy. Mm -hmm. It's just that, as a matter of law, according to Roman tradition, now, you know, we can ask a, a canonist for more clarity on this, but my sure. understanding of the matter from a theological perspective is that concretely, when bishops are ordaining married men as deacons, mm -hmm. they're not actually expecting them to remain continent. Right. That there's no, in other words, that. If you were to ask the bishop, well, do you really expect him to be continent for the rest of his life? <laughs> yeah. um, the bishop would probably say, well, I wasn't actually thinking about that. Yeah. You know, and for that reason, right, the, the, uh, that, that dimension of the vows of the deacon are not enforceable. Right. But, right? But, but when you look at the process, I mean, the, for many dioceses, you know, you have to be at least 35 to, right. be, to begin. Yeah, there's a reason yeah. for that. There has to be some formation of not just the deacon, but obviously of his wife as well. And uh, her permission throughout the process right. has to be given. You know, so I mean, it, it's and, and again, like you said, it's not just because the guy's going to be, you know, busy for a few more hours a week or, you know, she has to sit in the pews by herself while her husband is up there. But that those things that are that are there in that process, they were they were there for a reason much greater than simply function. Right. So historically, uh, historically, he was to remain continent. Mm -hmm. And that was true. That was true even of deacons who, right, in the early church uh, were not always transitional. Right. Right. I mean, there were permanent deacons in the early church. That's a that's a fact. Mm -hmm. See, w there was an idea right in the early church about purity related to the body. OK, mm -hmm. and this goes back into ancient Judaism. So if you think about the purity laws in ancient Judaism, um, the the priests, when they served in the temple, were required to undergo a period of abstinence from sexual union with their wives prior to their service in the temple. Now, in ancient Judaism, priests did not serve in the temple perpetually, right? They mm -hmm. served for, um, for periods of time. They right. had like, the, you know, they were like reservists who were called up into active duty, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, and so, you know, during the time when they were not serving in the temple, then they could enjoy conjugal union with their wives and bear children and all that. But during times when they were serving in the temple and in preparation for those times, they had to abstain. Mm -hmm. So this practice carries over into the early church. Mm -hmm. And you could think, well, um, but wouldn't that have been abrogated along with, you know, circumcision and the dietary rubrics and all this stuff? Yeah. Well, not necessarily, right? Not necessarily, because if you think about what those, what that particular problem dealt with, right? Mm -hmm. What was it? It had to do with converts from the Gentiles to Christianity. 
mm-hmm. and asking them to undergo circumcision being the major part of this problem, right? Right. A very frightening and painful operation uh, for an adult man to undergo, right? Um, and then, you know, also to assume all kinds of cleanliness laws, which require uh, a huge amount of habituation. So you haven't been living this way from the time that you were a child. And mm-hmm. so you've got to, I mean, you have to walk around with a rule book and constantly refer to it because you just don't, it's not ingrained in you how the dietary <laughs> right. laws, cleanliness laws actually work. So, you know, you're constantly fumbling over the external rubrics of the covenantal law rather than really being a Christian, and it's very hard, and it's a huge deterrent. Mm -hmm. But the concept of sexual purity was a concept generally understood in the ancient world, even in other religions. While in other religions they didn't observe the same rules, they understood very clearly the concept of sexual purity. Right. They really knew, right? They really got this idea of, um, I mean, look, there are only so many options. You could get married or you could not get married. (laughs) If you got married, you could have one wife or more than one wife. Nobody entertained the idea of a woman being married to more than one husband, right? Mm -hmm. The only real option here was one wife, more than one wife, right? And in Christianity, it was clear what that option was, right? So, oh, you can get married, but you can only have one wife. And then the idea of conjugal relations or not conjugal relations, right? Mm -hmm. So these are... This is a very narrow selection of choices. And so it happened. As we see the priesthood mature into the New Testament covenant, Mm -hmm. right? This idea of um, sexual purity associated with service in the temple, okay, uh, in this this case, the the Eucharistic liturgy, uh, is carried over, right? It, Mm -hmm. It makes sense. But one of the things that we find in Christianity is that the Eucharist was celebrated quite regularly, okay? Right. And then, in fact, once we identify Sunday as the Lord's Day, we find very early that it becomes a kind of new Sabbath. Mm-hmm. And on the observance of this new Sabbath, this sacrifice is made. This temple sacrifice is made, mm-hmm. right? Sacrifice of Christ uh, through the through Eucharist. And if that's the case, right, then what we have is every seven days, priests are offering this sacrifice, which means what? Well, it means that the traditional eight-day period of abstinence prior to the celebration of a sacrifice in the temple mm-hmm. required that the priests were always abstinent. <laughs> right. If their period of abstinence was eight days and they were celebrating the Eucharist every seven days, that, in, right. that kind Do of implies yeah, 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 per, uh, perpetuity. Right. Always yeah. Ab- so since we also recognize... So this is the interesting thing, right? We also recognize that deacons from the time of the primitive church all the way up to fairly modern times, right up until prior to the um, prior to the, you know, the new ordinal mm-hmm. deacons were associated with the Levitical priesthood. You know, this is an interesting topic we can explore at some other point. Mm-hmm. Um, if you want to ask, well, in what sense is the deacon a Levitical priest? Right, right. But it is it is true, okay? It is it, it is a fact that deacons were seen in the primitive church and all the way through the history of the church as Levitical priests mm-hmm. who served in the temple, right? right? Uh, in preparation for that period, underwent periods of abstinence, mm-hmm. right? Uh, therefore, deacons too were expected to be abstinent. Right? And I think the way that this this whole thing kind of gets you know couched in modern terms is okay. We have a 
we have an area or we have a, a place where there's a shortage of priests. Okay. How do uh, we, and this is kind of, this is how I kind of envisioned the, the thinking going. We have a shortage of priests in this area. Okay. Uh, we need more priests in this area. Okay. Why don't we have more priests in this area? And again, the first thing I, I think for whatever reason comes to mind is celibacy is an obstacle to having more priests in this area. Therefore, yeah. the solution should be uh, we should allow married priests. Now, now maybe there's a, maybe there's another line of thinking that that can be brought uh, uh, in there, but many times that's kind of the the argument that I think gets thrown out there that celibacy is this imposition on priests. Um, and so in the the whole approach kind of to the the idea of married priests is from a perspective of celibacy is a problem or celibacy is the reason why uh, men do not want to become priests. Right. Uh, and so, I think that's horribly mistaken. Yeah. Well, up to now, we've only really talked about the disciplinary aspect of it, right? Right. So we've talked about how um, in the primitive church and the early church and even in ancient Judaism, there was an expectation of abstinence prior to service in the temple, right, prior to priestly sacrifice, mm -hmm. and that in this carried over into the New Testament period so that um, the Eucharistic sacrifice was also met with a period of abstinence as preparation for it. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot more going on here than that, right? That's that's just that's just a disciplinary statement. Oh yeah. It begs the question, which is why was there this discipline? Let's note a couple of other aspects to this problem, right? Which is that lay people were also expected to undergo periods of abstinence. Mm -hmm. It was a pretty widespread discipline throughout the church for a very long time, until fairly recently in history, that lay people in preparation for reception of the Eucharist would be required to abstain from uh, from the conjugal life for a period of three days. Now, that, that, that's hardly known by anybody anymore. Right? Yeah, that's but, interesting. But it was, uh, it was actually a fairly widespread discipline within the church to be observed by lay people who were married, right? Uh -huh. uh, it's also a fact that many, this is not universal, but it was mm -hmm. widespread, many of the fathers of the church, among them heavy hitters, held the view that Christians ideally ought not to marry at all. And if they did marry, should remain continent mm. through the whole of their married life. <laughs> okay? That this, this was actually a widespread position, defended sometimes in very strong terms. Yeah. We see some of the fathers of the church suggesting that, you know, for a husband and wife to engage in conjugal relations is a mortal sin. <laughs> a mortal sin, right? Now obviously the church doesn't ratify this position. Right. But it was it was an opinion expressed by some of the fathers of the church. Others held that it always involved at least venial sin. Yeah, I think even St. Yeah. Augustine held that position. St. Augustine held that view. And he yeah. was he was actually one of the moderates, <laughs> right, in comparison to some of his contemporaries. Right. And then, you know, it really gets sort of softened by St. Thomas, right, who holds the view that it could be a case of mortal sin, mm -hmm. it could be a case of venial sin, or it could be no sin at all, or perhaps even a virtuous act, right, right. depending upon what is actually going through the minds of those involved, right? right? So... <laughs> But that's a complicated issue we don't have to discuss here. <laughs> but I, I just want to point out, right, the idea of abstinence in marriage is not foreign to the early church. 
So this gets us to the this gets us to to the basic problem, right? Which is that we what we're tending to do is oppose marriage and celibacy. Mm-hmm. Actually, right? Or not? I don't want to say marriage and celibacy. I want to say marriage and uh, and sexual abstinence, right? right. Um, actually, in the history of the church, those two are not opposed to each other. Right. Okay. They're not opposed to each other. What is the relationship between them? What we really come to understand is that. What lies behind this issue is an eschatological concern, right? Now, what do I mean by that? The relationship between husband and wife, as seen in the Christian sacramental context, mm-hmm. has an orientation to what is yet to come in God's salvific work. Also, the priesthood, in its relationship to the service of the church, manifests that which is to come, right, in God's salvific work, namely the full realization of Christ's union with his church. So let's think about, so this is the image given in Ephesians chapter 5 by St. Paul, Mm -hmm. right? Notice that his subject there is what? A husband's relationship to his wife. But what's his reference point in that discussion? Christ's relationship to the church, right? And he's mentioning Christ's relationship to the church, which he himself is modeling Mm -hmm. in relationship to the church of Ephesus in particular, right? So what's going on is Christ, in the course of history, as long as the church on earth remains, is drawing humanity, which has been dispersed and disintegrated in sin, Mm -hmm. back to himself, collecting humanity into oneness in the universal church, Mm. of which the church of Ephesus is one particular manifestation. There, in that particular church, Paul stands in the place of Christ, right, as head Mm -hmm. of that church. Now, this gets us to a phrase in First uh, Timothy, First Timothy chapter three, right mm-hmm. now, so this is exactly the phrase that many people will appeal to to say there's no problem here, right, with married clergy, because here Timothy Paul's talking about bishops, and he says, uh, as we usually translate it, that he should be a husband of one wife. He should actually be married, but is that actually what Paul is saying? That's the real question. Yeah. Uh, so what do you what he actually says, right, is um, that he is. Enaimias gunakos andra. He is to be of one woman man, right? Mm-hmm. He's to be a one woman man. Okay, that's what he's actually saying. Now seems odd. Or yeah, odd way a, of saying it. Yeah. Right, right. So it's a it's a strange phrase, I guess, right? Although we use, you know, this is actually sort of a, a vernacular phrase, or at least <laughs> yeah. it used to be pretty common. I'm a one woman man, right? <laughs> When people would express their fidelity to their wives. Sure. But um, but what is Paul actually driving at? Well, there's a lot of disagreement over what he means here, right, mm-hmm. in the style of the record. But here's actually what I think he means. I think he means that he's to have only the church as his bride, right? He's a one-woman man. He's not. Yeah. His loyalties aren't to be divided, okay? Yeah, well, and especially when you read the rest of St. Paul. I mean, he's constantly right. talking about Christ and the church. The two are one. Uh, the unity of the two, you know, and that's where uh, uh, even if you go back to his uh, conversion story of of St. Paul, um, Christ himself identifies himself as the church. I am I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Christ identifies himself to St. Paul as the church, you know, and you can see yeah. from that conversion story of Saul, much of kind of the, the, the seedling form of the rest of St. Paul's theology of looking at the, the, the connection between a marriage between a husband and a wife and Christ and the church. 
So when, yeah, he then, right. when he then comes to, you know, talking about the bishops to say, you know, the bishop should be a, a, a one woman man. Who's the woman we're talking about here? Well, yeah, the church. Right. It's the church. Right. Yeah. So um, and, you know, you could see this language, right? Just mm-hmm. as Christ is identified bodily with the church. So Paul identifies himself bodily with the churches over which he, he's, the, he's the governor, right? Mm-hmm. So he talks about how he bears on his own body the marks of Christ, right? Some have imagined that he means by this that he actually bore the stigmata. Mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not going to weigh in on, on that particular question. Right. At a bare minimum, what it seems to mean, right, is that is that Paul um, suffers for the sake of his church. Whatever the suffering is going, whatever the suffering is going on in his church, he suffers as Christ suffers, right? Mm-hmm. As Christ suffers for the church, so Paul suffers for his churches. That you know, he um, he makes up in his own suffering for what's lacking, right? Right. So you know, those are important dimensions. Or what I I guess what I want to say about this is that you know, while we tend to look at celibacy as sort of this problem and obstacle. And if only we just sort of got rid of this old, archaic, worn out, meaningless custom, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we could solve a lot of problems. Yeah. But it seems to me that that's just the wrong way to look at it. Instead, we should ask ourselves whether celibacy, under its dimension of removal of, how can I put this? It really comes down actually to uh, abstinence from the conjugal life, right? Mm-hmm. That's, that's basically the issue. And so, you know, the easiest way to achieve that is through celibacy, okay? Yeah. Right. Celibacy is the most perfect expression of abstinence from the conjugal life. But we should recognize that abstinence from the conjugal life is an aspect of Christian marriage as well. Right. right. It's wrong to oppose sexual abstinence and matrimony as if that's really the choice. Right. Mm-hmm. So if we just got rid of this abstinence issue then we would no longer have any reason not to ordain married men. Yeah, and I think that's that, that's approaching the whole thing from a, a purely pragmatic standpoint. I mean, you're looking at celibacy as a discipline that has no theological basis. Right, but it does have theological basis, and I think what yeah. we need to do is understand what the important theological meaning of sexual abstinence actually is. Yeah, right? well, and I think that's the way that Catholics should... Uh, begin to approach this issue of celibacy, of priestly shortage, of uh, um, married priest, is that we should approach it from a, a, a theological uh, and biblical uh, uh, standpoint, you know, and to, right. and, and to say, you know, there's a reason why we, why we have these things, you know, and that's, and that's, you know, kind of many times people say, well, we can change disciplines. Well, there, many times there's a, a, a theological reasoning of why we have, or I'll say this, Every time we have a discipline, there's usually a theological reason why we have it. We don't just have it for for whatever reason, for some arbitrary reason. Reason there's usually a the, a, a good theological or biblical reason for it, and so we shouldn't just you know set it aside for merely kind of pragmatic or, or a pragmatic approach to a problem. You know. See, I think this would be to do so in this particular case would be to exacerbate existing problems. Yeah. So it may temporarily induce uh, a kind of influx of seminarians from among married men. Sure. Maybe. I don't know. But I think in the long run, it would solve neither the priesthood shortage or the marriage shortage. Mm -hmm. Uh, So if we think about our current Western culture, right, if we think about our problems here in the United States, we have two shortages. It's not just a priest shortage, right? It's Mm -hmm. a marriage shortage. We have 
people getting married, A, later and later in life, B, less and less often, mm-hmm. unless you count remarriages, right? Three, less faithfully, yeah. right? Uh, and four, in a way that does not, even where they remain outwardly faithful, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. In a way that does not actually conform to what the church truly teaches about marriage and family, right? So you may have a couple, for example, where they don't cheat on each other and they stay married for the rest of their lives, but they use contraception, right? This kind of thing is actually a big problem. Notice the issue here, right? We don't understand the meaning of priestly celibacy uh, because we don't understand the the purpose of abstinence from an eschatological perspective, Mm -hmm. which means what? We also don't understand marriage right. from an eschatological perspective. Right. Right. Because remember, that's not the place of the opposition. The opposition isn't between abstinence and marriage. So where we really need to place our catechetical emphasis is is on um, is on the meaning of abstinence. Mm-hmm. Right. The meaning of sexual purity. Uh, and therefore, right, what underlies not only priestly celibacy, but also the whole notion of marriage in the Christian sacramental context. Going back to what you said, you know, it, it goes back to not just understanding uh, celibacy, but it goes back to also understanding marriage and the family that it's, you know, from uh, from those places, from uh, the marriages that will get uh, the priest. Our first approach should not be pragmatic but like you said because of our misunderstandings and our infidelity when it comes to marriages uh we are not producing uh uh, the priests that we need to sustain who we are the problem then is not celibacy the problem then is our understanding of uh celibacy within the context or i'm sorry in relation to marriage that's right so if you think about how most people today think about marriage, right? Mm-hmm. They kind of think of it as an, an official sort of legal enshrinement of a burgeoning conjugal relationship between two <laughs> persons, right? Yeah. By the larger society. Uh, and everyone is supposed to celebrate that event mm-hmm. and be happy about it, mm-hmm. right? So to put it in um, the, the simplest terms, okay, marriage is about sex mm-hmm. in the minds of contemporary people yeah that's why you have marriage right so here you see that sex is the actual value toward which (laughs) right toward which we're moving yeah well that's why we keep justifying changes to the definition of marriage that's right right it's all part of the puzzle right right since sex is the actual value and marriage is really just an official sort of celebration and enshrinement of a burgeoning conjugal relationship. And some people are inclined toward sexual um, satisfaction with people of the same sex, then, you know, right. it's sex. only just, yeah. right, um, that, we, uh, that we allow them, that we extend that sort of, you know, recognition to that too. But of course, this misses enormously, right, the big like the elephant in the living room is that from a from the perspective of the judeo-christian tradition marriage is not about sex mm-hmm. sex may be about marriage right but it's right. not it's not that marriage is about sex so we we see this when we look at the primitive church and we recognize that even if you know positions held by you know augustine or jerome you know may have seemed to our contemporary sensibilities as a bit extreme, right? right? (laughs) Nonetheless, right, they're identifying something that was widely um, perceived, and correctly so, in the early church. Mm -hmm. Uh, Namely, that Christian marriage was about the eschaton, 
it was about the coming reality, right, of, of the, uh, the full realization of restoration uh, to purity in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that was pointed out, right, by the fathers was that the marriages between pagans, which resulted, which, you know, were sort of expressed in conjugal terms, mm-hmm. were about answering a basic biological problem of a world that's passing away. So remember that Paul says it is the schema of this world that it should be passing away. Right. In other words, it's the very structure of the fallen reality in which we live, that it comes to be and passes away, right? It's subject to the laws of corruption. Mm-hmm. But the world to come is not subject to those laws. This was their thinking, right? So if the pagans get married in order to produce a next generation because death destroys life, mm-hmm. Christians need not engage in that activity because life has destroyed death. Yeah. We don't have to replace people who are dying because in the church, no one really dies. That's the logic, right? Yeah. That's the logic. And it's in that context that the idea of Yosephite marriage, right, makes sense. And remember, Yosephite marriage was uh, not so rare a thing in the early church as it is now. It was actually quite common. In some parts of Christianity, perhaps the majority of marriages were Yosephite marriages. And Christians would, would, their descendants came from the babies they collected from the quarry. Yeah. who had been abandoned, right, exposed to the elements by their pagan parents. Well, and, ju- and just so our listeners know, Yosephite marriage is where two people get married but remain celibate. Well, they're, they're, they remain abstinent, right? Abstinent, they, yeah. They don't, they don't consummate their marriage, right, right, through the sexual act. So this is actually the context within which we should really understand Christian marriage. We should look at Yosephite marriage not as the exception to the rule, but as the exemplar through which Christian marriage ought to be understood. Mm-hmm. Remember, the reference point is the Holy Family, right? Jesus, Jesus, Mary, and Joseph, right? So this is, that's the exemplar, okay? Uh, Christian marriage should be married, Christian marriage should be modeled on that exemplar. Uh, now, some of the fathers of the church held that this meant you ought to be continent through the whole of your marriage. The Josephite <laughs> marriage, being the exemplar, should also be the norm, yeah. right? The church has not historically ratified that view, okay? <laughs> but that doesn't mean that doesn't mean that Yosephite marriage isn't the exemplar. And I think it's very important for us to understand this. In the course of any given non-Yosephite marriage, there are likely to emerge times in the course of that marriage in which abstinence for a prolonged period of time comes to be required. Right. Okay. So, um, you know, the, without getting into, you know, too much graphic detail, right? You can, the, it's possible, right, for health, uh, for health events to occur. Right. Which require abstinence, right? You, you can't continue the conjugal life mm-hmm. during this period of time. And you don't know if or when that time may end. Right. You might be required, right, for the rest of your life to remain continent. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In the context of this marriage, which when you entered into it, you weren't intending that. But because Yosephite marriage is actually the exemplar on which Christian marriage is built, if we really understand that and embrace it and allow the sacrament to really be alive and meaningful, then should those circumstances arise in our lives, we'll be much better prepared to embrace them. Right. And I think that, and I think that's, you know, 
one of the things that you said, you know, our, our culture places entirely too much emphasis on uh, sex when it comes to these relationships, you know, you know, it's the, the, the culture says, you know, the highest, essentially that the highest form of love is sexual love. Um, that's why we base marriage on who we're having sex with. That's essentially how they want to define marriage. But we know as Catholics, that's not that the sexual love is not the highest form of love. Uh, it, it is a kind of love. It is a form of love um, that belongs within the context of marriage. But it's but it's not the highest form. And that even when you look at the the even when you look at married love, the highest expression of married love is not necessarily sexual love. Right. Um, it could very well be abstinence. Okay. So this is right. the, the interesting thing, right? Here is that you'll notice in the whole contraception thing where people rebel against the church's teaching on contraception, and they mm -hmm. do so you know, pretty matter-of-factly. I mean, they, you know, they, in in the contemporary United States, right? Right. Um, we, we know the statistics on this are pretty grim as far as the number of professing Catholics who use contraception. Um, it shows, right, that there's just a basic catechetical failure on the whole question here of the relationship between sex and marriage. So uh, abstinence is out of the question. Yeah. Right. I mean, like, why, why? How could you ask someone to abstain even from a short period of time? Right. E even for a short period of time, how could you ask somebody to forego the, the goods of sexual union? Um, that's completely unreasonable and uncalled for. <laughs> yeah. But in the mind of the church, it's not. And and in fact, it's um, it, it, it can well be right. An expression uh, of love and fidelity. Yeah, and I think that this goes back to what we were saying about the whole issue with many times when people say, oh, we have a priestly shortage. The first thing that comes to mind is, well, we should allow married men to get, we should allow married men to be ordained. You know, that should not be our first uh, 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 approach. It shouldn't be our first solution. It's, you know, well, maybe we should catechize better. Maybe we should have better marriages. Maybe we should have uh, you know, uh, uh, all of these things, take a more theological, take a more biblical approach, uh, to these issues than a mere pragmatic approach of saying, um, uh, because again, what we're, what we're kind of implicitly saying here is that celibacy is the problem. And again, this, I think it is reflective of a, of, of our society, even though we don't explicitly say it, I think, you know, we uh, uh, even as Catholics, because we live in this society, sometimes we may even place uh, uh, sexual love higher than it actually should be. And again, we should take that more theological and uh, biblical approach. Right. So what if we um, start in addressing the problem of the priest shortage, right? Mm -hmm. With catechizing very strongly yeah. uh, on this idea that marriage is not about sex. Mm -hmm. Right. That sex may be about marriage, but not the other way around. Right. That's sort of a prerequisite. Right. For Christians getting married. Right. Should be that they have come to understand and embrace this fact. And if they haven't, then they're actually not they're not well suited for marriage. Mm -hmm. They're not ready to be they're not ready to enter into the sacrament if they haven't embraced this idea yet. Yeah. And in many cases, if that understanding is so deficient, that's actually grounds for annulment. Right, um, that's right. If they exactly. enter into that with a deficient knowledge of what marriage actually is. So do you have any other any other final thoughts on uh on this this issue of 
of married priests being the solution to the the priest shortage at, at least when it comes to the 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 western right i mean it's uh, yeah. uh and the i mean in the latin right this has been our this has been our practice and again it's not done just because we want it to be done that way but because we look at who christ is what christ did what saint paul did what saint paul taught um that you know jesus preferred celibacy saint paul preferred and preached celibacy um that is, you know, not something, you know, now there's an entire, you know, all, you know, the other rites of the Catholic Church, some of them do allow uh, married priests and, and you know, uh, for good reason and for different reasons than why we uh, do not have it as the norm. We do have married priests in the Western Rite, but we do not. It is not the norm here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think I think maybe that's why why many people may be kind of sus or they, they may be kind of against this approach because, you know, as soon as we begin to to or have all these exceptions, those exceptions can possibly can later become the rule. Um, look at all the yeah, liturgical right. norms, you know, that we have uh, now. Many many of those norms that we have now, uh, and I don't mean written norms. I mean just kind of custom norms in our churches, are there because of exceptions to the rule, and, and now they're all over the place. Yeah. You know? So right. I mean, I could see that. I could see that as being a thing. Um, but um, uh, any final thoughts on that? Well, yeah, I have a lot of final thoughts. <laughs> if I explore all of them, they won't be final at all. <laughs> There'll be a whole other podcast. I would say, look, first of all, we can acknowledge, right, that for, that we do have married priests in the church today, uh, even in the Western rites, right? Mm-hmm. Um, in, in the Latin rite, we have married priests through the um, Anglican Ordinaria mm-hmm. or, or through the, uh, what do you call it, the pastoral provision, right, where right. we have, uh, we've accepted Protestants who've converted to Catholicism, but they were ministers in in their uh, their previous um, denomination, sure, and we've we've ordained them. Okay, now those are exceptions to the rule, right? Um, and there was never any discussion of that exception becoming a norm, right? Mm-hmm. In the Eastern rites, we have married priests, and we have had married priests for uh, for many many centuries. But again, let's remember, right, that in the early church, they were nonetheless, they were nonetheless um, expected to be abstinent. Now, today, I don't believe that that is uh, the case, right? That's not actually the case anymore. And I don't know the rules. I I have to say, I don't know the rules, if there are any, regarding uh, the observance of abstinence in Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Mm -hmm. You know, whether they have to abstain from conjugal relations before celebrating the Eucharist sure. by some period of time, I don't, I don't know the answer to that question, but it may well be the case that that is so, right? Mm-hmm. There may be room for some compromise, right? We know that we know that the Church has, um, at various times in the past, ordained priests with limited faculties, right, for very specific purposes to celebrate Mass or something like that, but didn't entrust them with other things. Um, should we choose to ordain some married men for under some limited conditions, right? Um, I, I'm not promoting that, but mm-hmm. I um, but if that decision were to be made, I would suggest that we consider um, we consider patristic standards, right, with respect to these to this move. Which would require at least, right, some 
um, some expectation of abstinence prior to celebrating Eucharist, which may mean that if we don't want total abstinence for them, that we would only allow them to celebrate Eucharist um, periodically, right? Mm -hmm. Rather than every day or, um, or every week. And, um, and I would also suggest rather firmly, right? I mean, my own view is that um, it, it should not generally be the case that married men are entrusted with, um, with the faculty to hear confessions. Right. I'm just seems to me prudentially. I, that doesn't seem to me that's, it doesn't seem to be something we should be comfortable with. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's a whole and, other discussion. I and I think historically the stories of missionaries, you know, so they would go to, you know, and this is essentially what the the Amazon is. It's missionary territory. You know, I think the the article I remember reading said there was, you know, like 800 communities and only 20 to 30 priests or something like that. So mm -hmm. these communities would only get, you know, uh, get to celebrate the Eucharist, you know, two, three, four, four times a year or something like that. What well, what the missionaries did was they established catechists those mm -hmm. catechists taught people uh particularly about when it comes to the sacraments marriage the eucharist holy orders and from there from that from that uh catechetical project the priest that would then serve those communities came from within the community uh which i think is probably the best answer out there you know if we if if sending priests is too difficult and you know even if it's like a cultural thing where you know, because the priest is just constantly traveling between all of these little communities. Well, we need to establish catechists in those communities who can stay there with them. They don't have, they don't, you know, they don't have um, a commitment to, you know, the 800 communities that there are. They just have a commitment to that one community. Give it a few years and a, uh, a vocation will come out of that community if the catechesis is good and solid. Yeah, uh, and, and short up in that way, but I think sometimes uh -huh. we're a little short sighted. We're, you know, you know, we need priests and we need them now. Like you had said earlier, you know, this may be kind of a, a quick fix to problem that that is maybe you know probably okay to do. But at the same time, is there a you know is there a better way? Yeah, I think yeah. I think there is a better way, uh, particularly raising up those people within the community, and you could do that without setting aside the gift of a celibate priesthood as opposed to, you know, just saying, yeah. well, let's just marry, let's just ordain married guys, you know? You know? I mean, personally, look, I, I wouldn't have strenuous objections to ordaining married men um, on the patristic standard. Right. Uh, that, that they were expected to be um, abstinent. Abstinent. Yeah. Um, well, well, and that's the, that's the issue there is that that idea is not really in our, in our, when we look at okay, what are, what are our options? Having an abstinent married priest, that's not even being considered as an option. Yeah, you right. Know, you're you're, you're what, putting it out I there. Yeah, you're putting it out there theoretically, but in reality, like that's not an option. <laughs> and and that's what troubles me about it, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I, you know, if that doesn't it doesn't seem to be what the conversation that we're having, and I it, and I um well, especially when you look at sometimes the appeals to. Well, they had they had married priests in the early church. Okay, this this continual. But what were they like? Yeah, what were they like? Well, they were abstinent. Oh, okay, that's that's a problem, you know. Like, yeah. So if your issue is, look, I mean, we have a bunch of 
we have we have mission territories and everybody's married and maybe in these mission territories they get married very young mm -hmm. right it's often the case where are we going to get these celibate men to ordain yeah okay 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 fine okay fine ordain some married men who will then be abstinent like they were in the early church yeah. And then over time, right, you what happened in the Western tradition, right, was that we just stopped ordaining married men since, you know, what's the point in getting married? Mm -hmm. If you're going to if you're right. going to be a priest, why anyway, get married? Right. Eventually, a similar outcome may emerge. Right. And even in the East, when they where they ordain married men, those churches, you have to remember, right, that the Eastern the Eastern churches are not diocesan based. They're not sort of the, the the basis of the church is not sort of the uh, the secular priest as the you get what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah that's yeah, not yeah. your dominant yeah. encounter uh, with with uh, with the church is the secular priest. The monastic priest yeah. is actually um, is actually the core of the church. Right. Mm -hmm. In the Coptic church, for example, the bishops are selected from the hegumenoi of the monasteries, the abbots of the monasteries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a reason for that. <laughs> yeah right <laughs> all right dr Kelly. well i think we've given our, our listeners a lot to a lot to think about and i think you know when we when when this topic comes up uh in the news or in discussion and things i think it's important for us to take a theological and a biblical approach before we we take a pragmatic approach into looking at the issue of priestly shortages and how to solve this issue and when we do take an approach we should we should be reflective of saying, well, you know, why, you know, or when somebody else takes a, an approach of that way, why, uh, uh, why are we taking this approach? What are, what are the, the presuppositions we're, we're, we're bringing to the table uh, to, to look at this issue? Uh, it's important for us to be, um, you know, reflective in that way. Uh, and so I want to invite all our listeners to check out all of our content over at uh, Catholic Studies Academy, uh, where we have courses in theology and philosophy. And you can study them and at your own pace. Until next time, God bless.